you know, Portland, um, uh, what I like about Houston is the diversity. We don't, we don't have, you know, a lot of diversity. We, we are like the, we have diversity in, in facial hair and alternative <laughs> lifestyles. But beyond that, uh, uh, but we were the loudest during, uh, during the, the reckoning of 2020. Uh, and that was maybe over our, our collective guilt of being the whitest city in the United States. Um, remember the wall of white moms? That was something. I think it stopped racism. Totally, it's just done, it's over, <laughs> it's finished. After that one woman got naked in front of all the federal troops doing yoga to stop racism. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, I used to celebrate the concept of Portland is this uh, bohemian, I'm, I'm born and raised uh, uh, Pacific Northwest. Um, I actually haven't, I haven't been to Houston in a long time. I, I was a recording artist. Um, for Tooth and Nail BEC, like just a couple years after I became a believer, uh, I, came, I came to faith in 99 in Seattle uh, and had been a secular recording artist and got radically saved, my wife two years after me. And then I found myself baptized into American evangelicalism. Uh, I had no idea uh, what was happening. Um, I, I just started writing worship music because I didn't understand the music at our church. And I was like, they, my pastor asked me to lead worship, and so the first Sunday I led, I, I introduced six new songs. I, you're, you're not, you shouldn't do that. Um, but it got me a record deal, and, I, and then I toured, because um, that's the goal of church ministry, you know, fame. Uh, and uh, um, I ended up on, on tour for all of 2003 and 2004, like for about a year in couple months and I did 265 shows and I and I played I played Houston probably like six times that year I because uh, the Woodlands Methodist kept trying to hire me um, and and I remember I played for Chris C's church he's yeah Ecclesia and I toured with Robbie um, C a little bit uh, but uh, yeah there was a so I, I have a you know when you tour Texas you just like you're here for like a month like it's like <laughs> It's the only state I've ran out of gas like three times, <laughs> even planning. <laughs> so uh, it's, great to, it's great to be back here. And I really do have a soft spot. I actually speak um, at a conference almost every year in Tyler, Texas. And uh, a pastor of a big church there asked if I would, yeah, he was retiring, and he asked if I would consider taking it over. And I'm not going to lie, it was 2020. I'm like, temp very tempting, the most tempting <laughs> ever. You know, Portland used to be this bohemian center. It's the place where I met my wife, fell in love in 96. Uh, and when we came back uh, to Portland in 2007, you know, the goal was to start a church on the east side where we met, where we fell in love. And, you know, we, we understood the culture. We, you know, we came to faith late in life. We knew what we were giving up. We knew what we were grabbing a hold of. Uh, when we met Jesus, it was a, it was a radical thing. Um, and God blessed the church. Uh, we, you know, my heart was, I had worked at three very large mega churches, uh, one in California, one in California, one in Spokane, and then uh, one in the suburbs of Portland under a guy, young guy that's actually a well-known author now, John Mark Comer. Um, and uh, um, he was, him and his dad were pastoring what at the time was the fastest growing church in Oregon, probably in the Northwest. Uh, and so when I started Door of Hope, my heart was something different. And that is that, first of all, to be an urban planter um, in the most unchurched city in the U.S. Portland is surrounded by conservative, evangelical towns and communities. Uh, so, you know, there, is, there are plenty of large churches and lots of Bible-believing Christians, but the urban core is what gives Portland the reputation that it has. And I realized that the only churches that were in the city that were evangelical were primarily made up of people that commuted in from the suburbs. And so... I made a decision with my wife early on that we would, we would put our emphasis, we don't want transfer growth, because transfer growth is not a win for the kingdom. Um, and that if we wanted to actually be an effective church plant in the city of Portland, then we had to be evangelistic. People are, you know, often ask me, like, are you, are you an evangelist? And I'm like, well, uh, whether or not that's my primary spiritual gifting or not, I can't tell you, but what I can tell you is that you shouldn't be a church planter and not be evangelistic. And I would actually argue you shouldn't call yourself a Christian and not concern yourself 
for the world outside of your world, uh, because Christianity is the only it's the only organization in human history that exists for the good of those outside its walls. Uh, and so for us, it was, it was the question of, well, how do we reach these people? Now, there's all these, these uh, oh, you know, surveys, like Barna Report, and God bless Barna. Um, but, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm convinced that most, most of these surveys are done by pastors who actually don't share the gospel with non-believers. Uh, because it's like they're gathering data around what millennials and Gen Z think about the gospel. And, and, and I think that it does a great disservice to the church to communicate uh, this idea that, hey, if you want to reach the lost, you need to understand them. And what you need to understand is they're not interested in what you have to say. Uh, well, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Um, I don't believe that's a hyperbolic statement. Uh, I think that Jesus actually meant what he said. What we need to understand is that the response to that drawing isn't always the same. Uh, everyone was drawn to Jesus when he was lifted up on the cross, but a lot of people were drawn to, to, to abuse him and to, to scorn him and to challenge him. Uh, but then there were some, like the thief on the cross, very much like my father, just said, Jesus, remember me. Jesus lifted up draws people. I think the church is trapping of believing that um, uh, neutrality uh, from a non-believing audience is the goal. Uh, we should not be interested in neutrality. Uh, what we should be interested in is lifting up Jesus, and we need to recognize that Jesus is also a sword that divides, um, and that's okay. And we don't need to be bullies. I, don't think, I think you can be a prophetic voice without being a bully. And nothing will actually bring about an offense in people's lives like the gospel of grace. Because grace is always unfair. And it always basically tells a lost world that, listen, you're not a bigger failure than God already knows that you are. And he loves you still. That's the encouragement that I give my people every week. Listen, you are mixture. Even as a born-again Christian, even spirit-filled, everything you do is still marked by sin on some level. We can't escape. That's why grace is good. <laughs> That's why it's really good news. Low anthropology is a necessity if we want to understand radical grace. And I, and I think in Portland is a place that has really revealed the power of low anthropology, um, which... <laughs> which in many ways is also the thing that causes us to ask the question, well, how do you reach a city like Portland? Well, let me just tell you, those Barnard reports are, that's not my experience in Portland. My experience in Portland is that is exactly what Luis Palau, a dear friend of mine who passed away, if you guys don't know Luis, he's, he's like the Billy Graham of Central and South America. His ministry actually is out of, out, was out of Portland, Oregon. He died a couple years ago, um, a mentor of mine, the most amazing uh, representative of Jesus I've ever known. I mean, it didn't matter if he was sharing the gospel with the Queen of England or the server when we would have breakfast together in Northwest Portland. He truly viewed people as someone loved by Jesus. You always got the impression that God really must care about me when that guy talked to you. And he could say the dumbest most cliche things you've ever heard in your life, and, and somehow it was always charming. You, I would never recommend it. When he preached at Door of Hope for Good Friday, I remember he's like, listen, friends, I, there's two cities. They both start with H, and I want you to go to the one, not the other. And then everyone's like, I want to get saved. And I'm like, how did he do that? It's amazing. <laughs> No robust, you know, explanation of the mechanics of atonement. Just Jesus died for you. He loves you. You're a sinner. Repent. Put your faith in him. He loves you. Come be with Jesus. And people are like, I'm in. I'm totally in. <laughs> that is a picture, actually, of a lost world that is, that is so thirsty for some kind of semblance of truth that allows them to know that they matter. And I think an evangelistic heart just requires a heart that realizes that people are not projects. They're image bearers. 
Um, and as image bearers, we have a responsibility to remind them of why they have that longing that is at the, at the root of, of all of their drives, um, all of their misplaced affections. Um, and we have to humbly call them to, to understand that they're made for more than what they're experiencing. And I think it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And what we've seen is, is hundreds and hundreds of young people come to faith in the city of Portland um, who have literally never heard the gospel before in their lives. My kids, uh, my son's 21, he lives in Manhattan and works in the fashion industry. My daughter's 17. They both went to public school in Cleveland. Neither of them ever had a single Christian peer in their schools. That's how, that's how post-Christian Portland is, um, the urban core. And yet, even their friends, when invited to go to church, they would always say yes. They may not come to faith, but they are open to it. Luis told me, he said, there was a survey done. This is the one survey I like. <laughs> it said 80%, it was like 2,500 people were interviewed that, were not, that, that had no affiliation to any kind of spiritual background. 80% of the people asked, um, if they were asked to go to church, would they say yes? 80% said they would go. They surveyed the same amount of Christians and asked them, how many of you asked non-believers to go to church? And it was less than 3%. That's a problem. So I want to talk with you guys about a particular passage, because that was all a rambling introduction, um, and I'm gifted at monologue, as many of you are as well. Um, uh, <laughs> it's a, I was meant to be a preacher of some sort. Um, that's the whole reason I ended up being a preacher. I never wanted to be a preacher. I just kept sharing more and more between songs when I toured. Um, <laughs> I, I'll just tell you guys a little insider story. I was on tour with David Crowder, and uh, Louis, and is it Louis Giglio? Yeah. That's his name, right? He was Crowder's manager. I think he still, or he, he was anyway, at the time. There, it was all part of the passion thing. And me being like this zealous, relatively new believer who just, I thought Christian music industry was, was ridiculous, and I just was using it as a vehicle to preach the gospel. Because if there's 80,000 people at a festival in Pennsylvania at Creation Fest, there is no way that all those kids are Christians. Because um, I was the kid that went to the festival in high school on acid and watched Michael W. Smith. And it didn't help. Um, and, 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 I, and, and so I'm like, this is just an opportunity to use this silly thing called music to be a witness to the gospel. And, and I was amazed at how, how little people that I toured with would talk about Jesus. And so I was like Keith Green, though. I had very little grace. So I'm just like, you kids wearing the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. He's not your homeboy. <laughs> like kids crying, like this guy's mean. But I remember uh, uh, Louis Giglio calling my label and complaining that I talked about Jesus too much. Yeah, it's real. It's real. Now, I don't think the issue was that I talked about Jesus, but that I was supposed to be opening with music for a headliner. And instead, I used it as a, we like play like three songs and I share for 20 minutes about why everyone needed Jesus. And I was so ferocious then and so, so uh, rough around the edges. I'm still, I do have a gold front tooth and a throat tattoo. So I'm, I'm not really, I don't know how far I've advanced from that, that moment. But I just remember like, I'll stop talking about Jesus when David starts talking about Jesus. And, uh, and then David's like, you can't say that. He's a good friend of mine, he, and he loved Jesus. But he just, his thing was just worship. We were here to worship. And I'm like, I want to hear, I want to hear about Jesus. Uh, so so I, I, I have issues. Um, <laughs> I want to share with you guys a passage that is so key to everything that I'm about. The book, um, Stumbling Toward Eternity, is really... My lifelong, since I came to faith in 99, obsession with the centrality of the cross. I truly believe that the cross is the only thing that actually will allow you to maintain some semblance of sanity in an insane world in which ideologies run rampant. And, and here's the thing. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. He says, God was pleased through the foolishness foolishness of the cross, what was preached to save those who believe. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Four words that wield absolute authority in the believer's life. We preach Christ crucified. 
a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. When I think about that passage, I think that there is actually a powerful picture of the tendency that we all have because, as I said, even in the power of the Holy Spirit, there is still sin at play. We need to remember uh, works of of great men and women who are built on the shoulders of, the, of the, the work, the mental work and spiritually guided work that they did. And Luther is one that is just not known as well as he should be, especially early Luther. I mean, I can't think of, of, of um, many documents written in church history that is more profound or powerful than the Heidelberg Disputation. It's not and it is worth getting familiar with. And this whole thing is that we need to understand that the responsibility of the preacher, the responsibility of the church planter, is to understand the distinction between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And a theology of glory, what he means by that is, is humanity's attempt to create religion out of what I call latter theology. It's essentially do these things and God will accept you. And Luther says the only cure to that, because everything in the world is driven by a theology of glory, I would argue that the world gives us endless ladders to climb. And my book is, is about the, how the cross is the answer to the ladders that exhaust us. And this is what, what I mean by ladder. We tell people, Jesus loves you. He, he says, come as you are. He, he accepts you. And we get them to come to him. And then we get them into the church. And then we say, well, and now here's a new ladder to climb. And it's actually it was more difficult than their life was as pagans. And I think the great problem within the church today is that we have lost our ability. The only, when we talk about vulnerability as Christians today, all we mean by that is we read a Brene Brown book. Um, and, and as great as she might be, uh, radical vulnerability is, in my opinion, the thing that is going to protect us from what we see is a continued trend of pastors completely flaming out because they were living duplicitous lives because there was an, what I call a Puritan hangover in which they were, they were continually living out an ideal that they themselves couldn't keep. And that's what turns us as Christians into Stepford wives. And what I mean by that is there's this attempt like, how are you blessed? I'm blessed, brother. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a, this, this, we have a vernacular, and even our vernacular is meant to keep people from actually going very deep. I came up in a movement in the Calvary Chapel movement, which was at the kind of the head of the Jesus movement on the West Coast in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. I actually think uh, my, my critique is that when it went from the Jesus movement to the Calvary movement, uh, it shows the end of a revival and the beginning of the machinery that, that ultimately leads to, to monuments and, and then, what's the old saying, and then to the mortuary. Uh, and and that's, that is a, that's a reality that we can't, that we can't ignore. Uh, every generation needs its own movement. But within the Calvary Chapel movement, there was this kind of tenacious holding to Acts chapter 6 as like the prescriptive way in which lead pastors should function, which is, you know, we pray and we study the word, which was an excuse for essentially not having any relationship with other people. And I always tell people, if your pastor doesn't have any new stories, like all their stories are about things that happened to them 20 years ago with people, you should fire them immediately. They, because, because how can we say that that, A, first of all, to even insinuate that Acts chapter 6 is, is giving us some sort of prescriptive way to function. And they're like, and, and what, were, what, what, what were they establishing? People are like, they were establishing deacons. It doesn't say that in the text. And they sure as heck weren't acting like deacons. Uh, Philip and Stephen went out and preached, <laughs> did signs and wonders. <laughs> Stephen is the first martyr. They were actually functioning very much like lead pastors, church planters, Prophets, they were, they were taking on the apostolic mantle, while the apostles, what's interesting is they kind of began to fade out of the 
story, and Paul fades into the story, and I don't see in Jesus or Paul this idea that the best thing for the pastor to do is just to keep his nose in the Bible and spend time on, it, on his knees as an excuse for not having to be with people. What I believe happens when we move away from the centrality of the cross is this, is that we fall into the trappings which Paul points out here, the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks look for wisdom. I see this in the, the two extremes, actually, within evangelicalism in America. You have on one side, the, the, uh, I can say the, the experiential Christianity, the more extreme versions of the, my Pentecostal brothers and sisters. There's much we can learn from our charismatic brother. People always ask me if I'm charismatic. I always say I'm charismatic with a seatbelt. Um, but uh, uh, but the, the Pentecostal, the idea that what... What God is doing through me, the subjective experience is actually what is supreme. But then my brothers and sisters on, that, on the very reform side, it, they, they, they view themselves as the protectors of doctrine and orthodoxy. And, and man, I'm like, both of those sides, to me, leads to pride in experience or pride in knowledge. And the cross is the great, the great leveler that keeps us balanced, that keeps us healthy, that keeps us sane in an insane world. Um, I, I want to just focus in on this, we preach Christ crucified, because I have so much, and I'm like a fire hose when I go guest speak, because I can't, my brain is like a little conveyor belt of ideas, and I'm just trying to, you know, so I am actually on some spectrum, uh, but I'll share my medications with you after I'm done with the sermon. Uh, so, uh, so I want to begin with this concept of we. We preach Christ crucified. Paul does not say, I preach Christ crucified. He says, we. That word is communal. If you want to have an effective church in Houston, reaching the community in which God has placed you, you need to breed into your community a collective responsibility to be carriers of the good news. And you have to model it. And it's not a matter of, I don't believe that Paul, when he says, I, I have too many friends, their idea of imitate me as I imitate Christ has basically become little replicas of me. The last thing I want is people to try to replicate me. I, I can't even handle me. I don't want that. When I say imitate me, I'm like, imitate my intimacy with Jesus, but do it in the way that God has hardwired you to do it. People are always like, how do you study? What's your, how many books do you read? Like, don't ask silly questions. I told a friend recently who's a very well-known pastor who loves to post how many books he reads a year on Instagram. I'm like, stop doing that. Like, first of all, all it does is create for the people that follow you an expectation when you're paid to do that. Like, you have the time to do that. That's what you do for a living. That's not even fair. No, an average working dude cannot read two novels a week unless he's not doing his job well. Um, and so I'm like, but, but this idea of we, I believe the modeling is that we should be reflecting what it looks like to be in love with Jesus, what it looks like to know him. And, and how we know him is modeled in how we actually love others. Now, here's the thing. I want to I just ask you a, a, a question. There's a famous quote that's attributed to Augustine. I personally don't think that he said it. I haven't been able to track it down. I know because I used it in my book, and when they asked me for the source, I could not find it. Um, so uh, it's amazing how things get just attached to people that are old, pithy aphorisms. He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing. Is that statement true or false? He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing. Is the statement true or false? Anyone? Is it true? Yeah, many of you just knew that that was a, that was a leading uh, question. I, I've... I've you know, I, I've, I've been mentored by Gary Brashears, who is a professor of theology at Western Seminary, because I am, I am truly, uh, I, I, am an, I, I wear the title amateur, which just means lover. Uh, that it, I, I do things because I love it. Not I never did well in the classroom, and I, have, I barely got out of high school. So I thrive in the library, never the classroom. But, that, uh, but Gary was the master of, anytime he asked you a question, do not answer. <laughs> Because whatever you think is the answer, he is just 
trying to draw you in so that he can make you feel stupid. Um, I'm not trying to do that, but I will say that there is an assumption that this is a true statement. The one who has God has everything. But let me just ask you another question then. Well, what does it say in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18? If Genesis chapter 1 is the creation account, Genesis chapter 2 is a zoom in on day 6. And in the zoom in on day 6, there's this peculiar aspect to the story, the narrative, and that there is a gap between the creation of man and the creation of woman. And, and it's not because men are better. <laughs> And it's not because God needed to create some, uh, 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 someone to fulfill man and to help him fulfill all his dreams. That, is not, that, that wasn't the purpose of the creation story of the two sexes. The fact is, is that man and woman, we're told in chapter 1, together image God. And that, that they actually reflect the image of God. He created them, man and woman, mankind in his image. In chapter 2, I believe that the gap is there intentionally for man to feel his incompleteness without others like himself. In other words, God says over man in an unfallen state, sin has not entered the picture. I mean, the serpent's there, but we don't know why he's there, and that's not something we should concern ourselves with. Uh, What we do need to understand is that God says over humanity before sin has entered into the human story, it is not good. He just got done saying it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. But this is not good. But wait a minute. Adam has God all to himself. He has him all to himself. He's in intimate relationship with the living God. And yet God says it's not good. And it's not that God is in it's just that it's not what God intended. In other words, Humanity, I believe the reason is, is because we are not a trinity, unless there's something wrong with you. (laughs) Now listen, in a city like Portland that used to be Portlandia and now is beyond Thunderdome, I see a lot of triune folks out there. Um, And uh, it's just not a healthy trinity. (laughs) Many conversations happening with no one around, and it's a a very troubling and upsetting reality in all seriousness. Humanity is being fractured um, and fragmented. Human personalities are being lost because of the hyper-individualism in which our culture has, has put the high premium upon. The secular age and the rise of the psychological self has absolutely destroyed the concept of how desperately we need one another. And I think part of the church's responsibility is If we want to image God, if we want to be an evangelistic community, we need to understand that evangelism is something that happens together. It's something that happens together. Christianity is personal, but it is not private. It's not private. I um, really have always loved um, Martin Buber's a uh, beautiful book, um, uh, I Am Thou. And he said, he makes a statement in I Am Thou where he says, he says, if I look away from my neighbor to God, I lose God. I can't have God without my neighbor. And this is why Jesus, you know, the Westminster Catechism, there's only one line that anybody seems to know from it. Isn't that true? I'm positive that this is not what they meant when they wrote it, but the only line that we know from the Westminster Catechism, unless you're a Presbyterian, and even then, it's possible that you still only know one line, uh, is the chief end of man is what? Glorify. glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why, why, do, we, why do we need to add, uh, create like a new, it's like, it's like a new motto. Because <laughs> like, I feel like the old motto that came from the lips of Jesus, which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, I feel like it's totally adequate for church history. Um, and, uh, and, and, and a better one to maybe tattoo on yourself. Uh, and, but the, the bottom line is this, is that I think that because we are products of a hyper-individualistic age, the church often treats the community like individuals, and, and, and I would simply say this, the church fathers were very wise in the usage of language. Um, Colin Gunton's uh, beautiful book on, on um, 
understanding of Trinitarian faith, he said the church fathers used the language not of individual, one God, three individuals, but they used the language of one God, three persons. Individual is the uniqueness of yourself defined apart from others. Personhood is the uniqueness of yourself defined in relationship to others. And I think that it's a very important distinction that our uniqueness is actually discovered in our relationship with one another and our intimacy with Jesus is actually discovered. This is why I am completely um, cynical in this new obsession with spiritual formation that is pushing us back to, to the desert fathers. I, listen, I'm an artist. Like when I got saved, I was obsessed with the mystics. I read them all, Teresa of Avila. Uh, uh, I read uh, Madame Guyon, uh, St. John of the Cross. You know why I liked them? Because it was full of secret knowledge, impenetrable secret knowledge. You read interior castles and tell me you have any idea what she's talking about. I mean, because it's all about these people that pulled away. The Desert Fathers was a, was a re reaction to Constantine's embracing of Christianity as now a state-initiated religion. And so all of a sudden, all these people that had been apostate when the church was under persecution comes back into the church. And a bunch of the, of the early Christians were like, we don't know if they're really saved. We don't know how to protect the church. So the best thing to do is to separate ourselves from the sinful um, impact of, of non-Christians being in our midst. And we're going to go away. It's going to be me and God. You know, the mystics were notorious for heretical ideas. Uh, not that... Listen, there's, you can find, first of all, everyone's a heretic somewhere, okay? So I've never read anyone that I agree with fully, but I definitely have read people that I agree with more than others. And I think that one of the things that becomes deep, church history, unfortunately, often is driven by great theological thinkers who often spent way too much time alone. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm not sure, I kind of agree with Luther, that's why one of the reasons I love Luther, Luther, for sure, if you're going to pick between Luther and Calvin was smarter, for sure. I'm not going to deny that. Christ, Christian is too, it's brilliant. I, I, think, I think Calvin, I'm not sure that Calvin would be stoked on, on uh, his interpreters, but, uh, but, I, but I will say this. Luther was definitely more fun. <laughs> like, he was for sure more fun because he liked people. He was a verbal processor. He worked out his theology in the context of community. In fact, he even said once, he said, solitude is the devil's playground. I find that interesting in, this, in a season where there's endless books being written right now on solitude. How many Christian, uh, how many of you guys, um, don't, don't raise your hand because I will bomb, I will blast you right now. Um, uh, but it, I'm fascinated by this because I, got, I came to faith in 99, so I'm like, I, I was 27. Like I, I, when I got, everyone thought I was like a poster child for the emergent church. I didn't even know what the emergent church was. And all I know is that I wasn't looking for anyone to be cool. I did not go to a cool church, and I didn't need a Jesus that was cool. I don't even think it's part of his vocabulary. I just needed someone to save me. Um, and I think that all attempts to be relevant, that was when Relevant Magazine started. And I was like, I'm like, what is the deal? Like, why do Christians not understand that the world will always do the world better? Uh, it's like, and so, so this idea of like fitting in and being, being relevant, it's, it's created in me like a, the, I, I, it's, I'm a Gen Xer. Like I, you know, I would say millennials, you know, they're idealistic, uh, but everything's ironic and sarcastic. Like at least we hated ourselves. Um, you know, so, um, but I, I, I was married, like the fads that come and go. When I first got saved, it was the prayer of Jabez. And, like, and then, then it's like, now everyone's talking about Sabbath. And then the new, the new one, the, the one over the last few years, I'm so glad it's already gone. Nobody's even talking about it. Enneagram. What the, what in the world? I, like, seriously, it's for a bunch of evangelical kids whose parents didn't let them read Harry Potter. And they're like, I'm going to dabble in the occult for myself. Um, <laughs> it's like, I now have nine perfect numbers read people with absolute precision. Um, what's your wing? I, I, what's your wing? I always tell people when they ask me, like, I'm a zero. Uh, but my wife thinks I'm a 10 sometimes. <laughs> 
But I, I think all of these things speak to the fact that we lost our center. It speaks to the fact that we are obsessed with understanding how the gospel impacts me personally. And all the while, Christians are sitting in pews bored, waiting for the next big thing. But if they actually put their faith on and begin to share the love of Jesus with a lost world, they would find that their faith is actually quite exciting, quite meaningful, quite transformative. We are so afraid of what people think. But the fact is, is then we're miserable when we succumb to that kind of pressure. And it's a terrible thing. Our faith is communal. We preach Christ crucified. The church has the responsibility. It's not the preacher. It's the whole community together that comes with an expectation that the living Christ is going to show up and, that he, and there is an expectation that he will be lifted up. And when he is lifted up, people will be drawn. The church is not just, not just communal, but it is confessional. We preach. Preach is something that actually happens with the mouth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that means that as I live in Portland. In Portland, when I first started Door of Hope, everything was driven by social justice. And it was driven by, I'm, I'm actually convinced that justice might have been destroyed when we added an adjective to the front of it. Um, but, uh, but here's my, my biggest issue is that I believe we should care. I've been a city that is it is heartbreaking. Our decriminalization of fentanyl and meth and then our giving people free tents, we have become, a, we've become like the, the salvation for, for every drug addict in America. People are like hitchhiking from New York to go to Portland. It's like the promised land where you can do drugs and die peacefully. And, and, and the terrible thing is, is that the city, it's all under the guise of empathy. Man. There's a great book by uh, Stefan Zweig. He was Europe's greatest novelist in the early 20th century. And his one novel that he wrote was called Beware of Pity. I wish everyone would read it. <laughs> it's like the danger of allowing pity uh, to be the driving force rather than an actual concern for divine image bearers. I think that we give people tents in Portland. Uh, our progressive politics is so insane. Like we make liberals look conservative. Uh, and, and, and our whole thing is like, we, we want to respect the individual. And I'm like, by giving, you, feeding the homeless in Portland in a way is just helping them kill themselves. It's a complicated, nuanced situation where we have to rethink what it means. My, our thing at Door of Homeless to actually be brought in and be a part of our community. We want them to actually know that they are loved and they are they're image bearers. And obviously, you got to deal with if you got someone on drugs, you got you have to protect the, the whole community. But when we have people that are legitimately getting off drugs, we work the organizations that are most impactful in Portland are church organizations that actually care for the whole person. Uh, mental illness is not the primary issue, nor is it as they call it now houselessness because because of the policing of language. I'm like, they're not houseless, they are homeless. And they are happily homeless because we give them places to stay outside, meals all day long, and we let them do drugs without any consequences. In other words, we are asking them to kill themselves. That's what we're asking. And I care a lot about this issue because my son lost a childhood friend last summer because he thought he was taking Percocet and he took fentanyl that came from the cartel. I mean, it's just like a heartbreaking reality. So confessional community is this, is not a community that puts all its emphasis in getting in bed with the city to make, make heaven on earth. Because Jesus was very clear that before his return, the world would get worse, not better. Um, I, I'm not a, person, uh, not a big advocate of, of uh, restoration theology in the sense that we're going to get the world ready for Jesus to return. I don't think Jesus saves cities any longer. I used to think that. The only city he ever saved in the Bible was Nineveh. Where is that today? Um, cities are always a picture of Babel. It's a place where people come together to show what they can do without God. And this is why ministry must always be in the cities because the responsibility is to bring people from death into life. And that comes through the preaching of the gospel. Amen. And the preaching of the gospel should inform how we, how we act. I'm a responsible 
citizen who votes and pays taxes, and I, I'm involved in, in things of the city. I'm like, I think I should run for mayor at this point. Um, <laughs> but the fact is, is that the goal of Door of Hope, people are like, what are you going to do? What's your mi-? Someone asked me what my missiology was, and I'm like, I think you mean mission by that word. I'm not totally sure what that word means. When I first started Door of Hope, I'd never even heard it before. And I'm like, and he's like, how are you going to engage with the city? What are you going to do to engage the city? And I'm like, I'm like, let me think about that. So he gave me Leslie Newbegin's Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. I read the book, and I came back to him, and he's like, so what's, what's, how are you going to engage? What's your, what's your goal? I'm like, I'm going to do open-air preaching. And he goes, I don't think that's what Newbegin meant by that book. <laughs> and, but I did. We started doing Church in the Park, which we've done for 14 years, and we've seen hundreds of people come to Door of Hope because we don't go out and preach at the pagans out there. We just bring what we do in, in the building in the few months of summer, we bring it out into the park and we do church in the park. No amplification. Like Spurgeon said, if you don't have a big red cage or the ability to project volume, you're not called to be a preacher. And we just, we sing songs and we do a service and people come and see and they're, they're drawn in. And it's a powerful thing. Man, one time this person stood behind me and smoked weed and kept blowing the weed into the back of my head while I was preaching. And it was amazing. That night we had visions. <laughs> and then we all got hungry. <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get, but it's a powerful thing when the community lives out this proclamation piece, which is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I always say that sin leaves the body, salvation enters the soul, and witness all happen through the mouth. But we got to believe I always say it's not your responsibility to make people believe what you believe, but they should at least believe that you believe what you're telling them. Do you know the living Christ? The herald is one who simply introduced, and that's the powerful thing. We're not, we're not, we don't come up with creative, clever, new, new, we don't have a new message. We're just giving the same message. And the same message is the saving message, which brings me to this third, and we only have two more, personal. We preach Christ. Christ, not something, but someone. We are preaching the power of the living Christ, that we're introducing people to someone that we know, someone that has saved us. I always love that Luis Palau, the reason that we became good friends, he's like, Josh, you talk about Jesus like you know him, and that's the deepest need in the church. I always say, I don't have the education, I don't have seminary, I don't have any of those things, but the one thing I know I'm able to give my people is that I really actually love Jesus. And I really believe he loves the people that I'm talking to. And I actually think that will take you a long way. All the education in the world means nothing if you don't know the living Christ. Nothing is more damaging than unregenerate systematic theologians. <laughs> and, I, and I think that it's, there is a lot of, lot of ideas, a lot of speculation about what the real Jesus said. I mean, how many, every time you go in the grocery store, there's a new magazine about the real Jesus. You know, the data is pretty simple. It, the most robust data we have about Jesus is actually found in the Bible. And so I trust the Bible, the simple reading of the scriptures, the belief in its authority. But most importantly, I'm not interested in the worship of the written word. That leads to an arrogance that is damaging and can lead you to dead orthodoxy. I am interested in the living word in which the Bible is continually witnessing to. And we are called to introduce, to connect the dots. We preach Christ. We are introducing people to someone who said, when I be left, the Bible draw all people. And that is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing because it is the thing that the world needs more than ever. Finally, we don't just introduce people to Jesus. You know, there are lots of churches, liberal churches in Portland that talk about Jesus, but they don't believe he's the son of God. They don't believe that he died for the sins of the world. They think that he is a great model of, of what it means to be an enlightened human being. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking fact. There is actually an incredible moment, uh, one of the most humiliating moments for a very well-known Unitarian pastor in Portland. Uh, she's an author, and she was interviewing Christopher Hitchens, the, the renowned 
very snarky but weirdly charming atheist who died of cancer a few years back. And she was interviewing um, Hitchens and she was telling him, she was trying to agree with him in the interview. She was like totally kissing up to him. And she's like, we actually, I actually believe, our church believes much of what you believe. And then he goes, what do you mean? And she's like, yeah, we don't believe that uh, Jesus is the son of God. We think he's a great example of enlightened humanity, of, of, as he's a great human teacher. And he goes, he goes, Sue, he goes, let me ask you then. So you don't believe Jesus is the son of God? She's like, no. You don't believe he died for the sins of the world? No. You don't believe that he rose from the dead? And she's like, no. You don't believe that he showed himself to his followers? And she's like, no. You don't believe that he ascended to the right hand of the father? And she said, no. And you know what Hitchens' statement was? Then you're not a Christian. <laughs> Sweet Lord. And atheists <laughs> preach the gospel. <laughs> and it was a, I mean, it terrified me for him because he was able to articulate the gospel better than most preachers. And she was like, I don't believe any of that stuff. And he goes, you're not a Christian then. You shouldn't call yourself one. And I was like, dang. This is why it is important for us to understand that our witness is not just something that is communal, it's not something that's simply confessional. It's not simply personal, but it is sacrificial at its core. It's sacrificial. The cross, if we remove the cross from our preaching, if we remove the cross as the center of the Christian experience, we actually drain Christianity of its blood. We preach Christ crucified. Paul says, I have determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. This is not an oversimplification of, of a theological grid. This is the heart of the gospel. It is Jesus undermining, you know, there are lots of theories on atonement. There's the penal substitution. There's the Christus victor. There's, there's the, the idea of, of uh, recapitulation, the idea that Jesus is the second him. All of them are true, and all of them are necessary for us to understand why the cross is so central. Jesus did make a public spectacle of Satan and the dominions of darkness on the cross of Calvary. Jesus did. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He did actually take into himself. He didn't just come to identify with our humanity. He came to identify with us in our lowest point, our sin. And that is a powerful reality. Even the most flaming pagan, although they've done all that they can to eradicate the concept of sin. If we can just get rid of sin, then we don't have to have guilt. But people feel just as guilty, just as broken as they have ever felt. There is nothing new under the sun. And all these attempts to say, well, we can't really preach the gospel until we break down this philosophy and this philosophy. Listen, there is no way for you to even keep up with the ideologies that have got hooks in us. You read Carl Truman's book that came out in 2020. It's a profound book, but it leaves you at the end just like, whoa, what am I supposed to do with that? Preach the cross. That's what I would say. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who saves anyway. We are called to be the heralds. Jesus has chosen to use broken, sinful vehicles like you and I to bring the truth of his gospel to, to the world. Listen, the world doesn't need a theology of suffering. Christians don't need a theology of suffering. I don't know why you suffer. I don't know why the serpent's in the garden, and I don't care. What I care about is that God has done something about it, and that's what the cross tells me. The cross tells me that I don't have to understand why I suffer. The cross reminds me that God cares about my suffering and he has done something about it. This is what Dorothy Sayers said in Creator Chaos. Whatever game God is playing with human beings and human suffering, he has played fair and he has taken his own medicine. And that is a profound statement. And what I would say is that this, is that I am a guy who came to faith at 99. I was lost and Jesus found me. And where he showed me that he cared about me was that he says, Josh, I have entered into all the stuff, the women that you slept with, the drugs that you did, the people that you took advantage of, your ego, your arrogance. I died for all of it. And you are not a bigger failure than I already know that you are. And the good news is this, and I love you. On your worst stinking day, I'm crazy. And if we don't hold tenaciously to that belief, 
The cross is the only thing that actually confirms those meaningful words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, which tells me that ignorance is not innocence, but it's God's heart to forgive. He's forgiven you. And when I believe that I am forgiven and loved, it creates fire in me, and I cannot rest until I tell others about it. I can't rest. People are dying in our, in our country. People are making choices that are destroying relationships. And some of you come from destroyed, broken relationships. My dad just died last year. My book is all about my relationship with my dad who abandoned me at one and my brother and chose a life of drugs and alcohol. But you know what? We can't say we have faith in Jesus and refuse to hold on to faith for the people like my dad, Alexander. And one of the things my book shows that I couldn't pastor a church and say I'm a spiritual father to these kids when I refused to reconcile with my own father. And when it said, honor your mom and dad, I was like, why isn't there a contingency on that verse? And then once you become a parent, you're like really grateful there's not one. And, 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 and it was through my pushing into that relationship where I had to basically be like a priest to him. I had to, be, I had to let go of my desire for him to tell me he was sorry, which he never did. And he never, he never, he even said, I'm never going to apologize to you, Joshua, for how I raised you. I'm like, you didn't raise me. You literally didn't raise me. Um, and he's like, I'm not going to talk about this. And he hung up on me. But I remember he came to faith in 2020 while he was dying from alcohol poisoning. And the, the chaplain shares the gospel with him. And he tells me, I said, Dad, he told me that you accepted Jesus. And he said, yeah, but I'm not sure it's stuck. And uh, my dad lived alone in a cabin in Alaska, um, uh, off the grid, never paid taxes in his life. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, Dad, I think Jesus' grace is stickier than your doubts. And he goes, you know what, son, I believe that. I pray to him every day. I just feel like I should be able to do something for him. And I'm like, everything that's to be done has already been done. Jesus, this is what the cross gives us is an assurance that nothing else can. Nothing else can. You guys, we preach Christ crucified. What a powerful, powerful statement. May you lift up Jesus together. You guys need each other. You can't do this alone. Hold each other accountable. Love each other well. Celebrate the victories. Don't allow mimetic rivalry to, to taint your relationships. We need hundreds of more churches to reach a city like Houston, not less. If someone moves in next door to you to start a church, celebrate it. Don't, don't fight against it. Trust if God's called you to do what you're doing, then he will provide the... Say, if God's called you to be a preacher, he will call people to listen to you. If nobody's listening to you, then you're not called to be a preacher. This is a simple fact. Uh, so it's like worship leaders. If you can sing... <laughs> Maybe you're called to be a worship leader. If you can't sing, maybe not. Uh, we, we should listen, but we need each other to even know what we're supposed to be doing. May you hold tenaciously to the cross, to Jesus, and to one another so that you can know him more and make him known in this city. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Thanks, guys.